Welcome to the NS North Podcast. My name is Philip Kaskran, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Dan Byers. How are you, Dan? I'm really good. How are you, man? Oh, I'm doing great because tonight we have a speaker that's coming back to NS North. He's a, he's a, not, not just attending this time, but giving a talk, and it is Daniel Steinberg. Hello, Daniel. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. So uh, some listeners might know you from the workshop that you gave at NSNR 2016 that was super well received and the kids workshop, but uh, it's been a while. So can you tell us a little bit what you've been up to in these three years? Wow. You know, just summarize three years in a minute. <laughs> I've been, I've been uh, very lucky that, that Swift keeps moving forward and the language actually has been getting better over time. And so it's been very exciting. And then learning from people that are pushing uh, the community sort of in functional directions has been a lot of fun. And so uh, learning myself and then being able to share with people workshops, which again, teaches me more so I can teach more. I'm just having a blast. So you would say that uh, the fact that Swift is moving forward is, is one of the key things that happened the last three years. Well, that and it, those that's the time period where Apple opened it up to the community more. And so some of the directions I think Swift moved weren't necessarily directions that Apple had anticipated either. Are you following the Swift evolution uh, from a distance? Or are you involved? Or it, it got a little overwhelming, but I do still read it all the time and, and look at what's happening and, and look at sort of the, the big tent poles for what they're including. You know, as we record, we're at this important moment where um, actually, Swift 5 has just shipped, and that's when, when the ABI got stable. So now it'll be interested to see what, what they do in the future. Are they going to focus on, you know, async and, and getting that together? You know, what directions will they go? Yeah, that's right. As uh, as you mentioned, as we literally, as we record the podcast, Swift 5 has shift, shipped. So uh, it's available with uh, Xcode 10.2, uh, and uh, the ABI is, should be in the... Um, Mac OS 10.14.4 and in uh, iOS uh, 12.2, something like that. So, yeah, exciting times. Really? It just is. I mean, you think this language is, is so new, and yet we're getting really comfortable with it. And they move fast. Yeah. They, uh, yeah they've, they've done a ton of work over the past few years. My goodness. And, it, and it's, it's funny because you hear the, the criticisms both directions. Like, they released it too soon. It wasn't ready. They released it too late. We couldn't shape it. Like, they can't make anyone happy. <laughs> Which means they probably did something right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing lots of traveling as well over the last three years. I have. It's It's been really nice that, that you start meeting people in different cities and it doesn't feel like you're, you're traveling so much as you're coming home to friends in all these cities. Yeah. What was, uh, what were some of the more notable places that you've been? If you can. This year was my, my first trip to Singapore. Um, so that was brand new for me. Tokyo was wonderful. And I love going back to the old standards. I have so many friends in, in London and Paris and Amsterdam. Those three cities are, are always so welcoming for me. And then, of course, I'm looking forward to Montreal. That's, that's where my wife and I had our honeymoon. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. How many years ago was that? Uh, 26. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm, I'm very old, and I'll be talking about that on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should bring my cane and join you. <laughs> So do you remember much about Montreal? I do. Although, so my wife and I, when we got married, she had been a smoker before and I told her I wouldn't marry a smoker. So she chose our honeymoon to give up cigarettes. And by day two in Montreal, I was begging her to smoke again. 
<laughs> but <laughs> but we loved so much of it, the old town. And then we went up north to, to Quebec City for a couple of days. And so it was just a, a great week. Oh, right on. Oh, that's great. We're, we're so lucky that you're able to come up here again. That's great. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, the majority of your work these days is is keeping tabs on Swift and doing workshops related to that. Um, so it's, then- a, it's a mix of writing code, you know, contract coding and, and consulting and then teaching and then writing and now thinking about videos a little bit, talking to people like Chris Idoff, who's saying, you know, why don't you consider doing some, some work in videos? And so I've been testing that a little bit as well. Oh, very good. H- how far along is that uh, concept? I've, I've shown it to a couple of people, and, and now I'm ready to do more. And, and then also I've been thinking, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I had a ball with you guys doing the, the workshop for kids. How do you teach kids how to code? And, and in fact is the reason that we have so much trouble with functional programming that we know object-oriented programming, and would it be better to teach kids functional from the beginning? And so I've been thinking about that a little bit too. Oh, wow. Start them young. So I, I don't know if, if we start them without thinking about objects, might that be more the way we think? Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovered mathematician. That's the way we teach them math. Right. You know, one input, one output. So would that be more natural? I don't know. And and I'm sure people have done a lot of thinking on this. And so, you know, before I jump in, I want to look at some of the research and what other people have done. From my background, what I'm thinking is that objects, uh, you can relate to them on a concrete level. Like, you know what an object is. You can manipulate an object. You can you can poke it. You can change it. And, and for kids, having something that's mutable, uh, we use this word, they wouldn't know what it is, but it means that something that they can change, that they can mold to their, their will, is something that is very, very close to what how they think, I, I would think. I don't know, because you think about uh, one of the things when you talk about mutable, when you send the same object the same message, you might get different answers because it has changed over time. Yes. And the nice thing about a function is every time you put in the same input, you get out the same output. So, you know, from the outside some things I think will resonate with them better and some things might resonate worse. I, I just don't know. I, it sounds like we have some experimenting to do. And, and kids are just so perfect for that, huh? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, uh, of functional programming, what's one of the, the biggest hurdles that you've seen people uh, stumble on, upon? Because we've all had math, so we've got some basic training when you're starting to, to, to code at a, at, a, at a relatively high level. Uh, what what do you see the stumbling blocks are for people that start thinking functionally? I think one of the things, and it, it trips all of us up, is you know the hidden side effects in our code where we don't realize that we aren't writing something that's a pure function because it's that it's calling out to other code or it's somehow involving a, a singleton or, or some global constant that we hadn't really thought about, and so you know we're kind of cheating without seeing it, and and it sort of messes with our understanding of it. So would you say that when you uh, when you start thinking about functional programming, you should just start thinking about literally if you put something in, it should have no side effects essentially? That's what I've been thinking because you think the first thing we ever teach people is hello world. Hello world takes nothing in, puts nothing out, and it's all side effect. And so this thing that we think is the simplest thing to teach people, I don't know, maybe we're going the wrong way. Could you write a program in, in just – 
completely functional way and have literally no side effects, it seems like it wouldn't do a whole lot. So that's that's where this this evil word that people are afraid of, monads, had to be introduced to Haskell so that, you know, if you have no input and no output, then of course the program can't do anything. And so monads were invented there to deal with I.O. So, of course, we can't do that, you know, for everything, especially when we're teaching kids. But in the context of a playground where we can control what goes in and out, I also have this this thought about a visual way of communicating this. I've been playing with diagrams, but you know, I'm just talking about stuff that that I haven't thought out deeply. So I, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. There, they say, or I've I've read about that. There's a certain age that you can start introducing kids to algebra and these kinds of higher abstract thoughts uh, that our way of thinking about the world. Would you say that something would be similar for programming, or could you go uh, earlier? So as a as a former math teacher, you know, one of the issues that, that we run against is we can teach kids how to solve things. It doesn't mean they understand what they're doing. They're just running these routines and these algorithms and, and chugging through and solving for X or, or finding the value of Y. Applying a recipe, essentially, right? Exactly. I mean, many people get through calculus that way. Yeah, it's more of the mechanics of it all it's, uh, versus the understanding the concepts, right. I guess. Yeah. And, and math books, at least in the U.S., kind of have this contract with people that, you know, we teach you something, we give you six examples of it, that's all we're going to ask you in the exercises. We are, aren't going to ask you something that synthesizes all the knowledge yeah. you have so far. Yeah, usually you don't see that kind of stuff until you get into the, uh, you know, uh, undergraduate level mathematics. Mm-hmm. It's definitely an interesting problem. So in terms of... The like the majority of your consulting work, what would you say? Like, do you approach it? Do you approach your solutions in a functional way? Like, if you're applying this, like, what what you teach to what you actually implement? So, not necessarily, and I'm not religious about it. When I teach, what I tell them is because I'm mainly teaching experienced programmers, and what I tell them is the object methods that you know aren't wrong. But you know them already. So I'm teaching you this stuff so that you have more tools in your tool belt. But I'm not saying don't ever use OO anymore. Don't ever use protocols. You know, don't ever use the delegate pattern. It's just this is another tool that you can use and it'll help you write. You know, I, I talk about this a lot where I, I'm not religious about this at all. I think that you use the best yeah. technique for, for what you're trying to do and also being careful. Some of these people that go all in on functional, the yeah. rest of their team doesn't know what they're doing. That's one of the problems I have with some of the design patterns that have been introduced, like a, a MVVM or a, or Viper or these uh, these uh, the coordinator patterns and things like that. Is that introducing a new person to them might be challenging uh, if you get a new member on your team, and you always have to look out for new people on your team. Your team should not be static. Right, and you think about what design patterns were intended to do in the first place. It was kind of to give us a common vocabulary so that when I said visitor, you knew what I meant. And it shouldn't be something that, that makes it harder for people to enter. It, maybe it's because they're newer design patterns, so they have maybe a little bit less uh, understanding. We, it, you don't have the design pattern book that, ha that has the whole, uh, exactly, visitor and, uh, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, the model view controller, I think, is part of that too as well. So. If if you think about it, design patterns were around before the famous Gang of Four book, and design patterns used to be really short. Like if you look at Kent Beck's Small Talk Best Practice Patterns, they're really tiny. You know, if you use an if statement, here's how you can break it up. 
And then they became these mammoth things, and people thought of that as design patterns to the point that now if you read a design pattern book, say, in Swift, it's not Swift design patterns. They're taking those same gang of four design patterns and showing you how to do them in Swift, whereas I think map is a design pattern in Swift that we use in you know, arrays. We use it in, in uh, optionals. We use it in result type. You know, map is a design pattern. So design patterns can be these tiny things that we abstract to solve problems. But also code is read a lot more than it is uh, written. So you want something that you can read and understand what's going on at the same time. Absolutely. From my perspective, going through computer science and learning about the those the the, the the common gang of four patterns, they seem to be a lot more comprehensive. You know, in terms of like you know implementing your solution to a bigger problem versus you know more of the more of the micro scale of things where you're where you're you know applying elements over an array kind of deal like it's yeah it's def definitely you're you're tackling a different scale of an issue as well well and it it actually sort of hijacked the word design patterns you know ward cunningham is the one that invented that phrase and when ward invented it he meant these specific things that were based after architecture and, and alexander's patterns for designing houses and, and buildings wow and he wasn't really thinking about these these huge design patterns that would take 30 pages to explain. <laughs> the other thing is uh, it, there was a trial of the Gang of Four in one of the Oopsla conferences at which James Copeland raised the point that design patterns are language dependent, that these design patterns that you read about in the Gang of Four are because the language didn't have that built in. It had to be something added to the language as a, oh, as a common solution. Interesting. They, they consider a design pattern to be language-specific. Well, those the, the the gang of four ones certainly are because some languages have some of those things built in. You don't need it, huh. but at least you can recognize it as being what it is, which is the one of the, those patterns. Sure. So again, when I say adapter, yeah. you know yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, um, man, that that was a very good tangent that we went on. Um, I've got I've got this sort of side hobby which you know a lot of men don't admit to and that is I've been knitting lately and I've been knitting complex lace patterns lately and it's the same thing these little design patterns that help me describe something locally make these incredible things when you look at the whole piece as, as a whole and so I look at at what I'm doing when I'm knitting as being very algorithmic and and very much like the programs that we write and it, it's kind of cool to see this you know, last time we talked about bread baking, it's kind of see all these different hobbies of ours come together. Yeah. And there's these common takeaways from them. That is so neat. I am currently wearing socks that my, my wife knitted because she went into knitting. She went into the textile arts in general and took on knitting because it's easy to carry around and she can make things that people like. And and I totally recognize that what she's doing is she's essentially running a program, right? And if she's got uh, if she's got a problem in it, like there's a wrong count or something, she's debugging <laughs> and she's undoing. And I've, That's I've right. had this talk with uh, uh, former speaker Liz Marley at NSNR 2016. She, she was a knitter as well. And she, she totally con uh, convinced me that it's, it's exactly the same as, as debugging and as, uh, as uh, applying the program and just following. And you're, you're a little computer, but you're still, it's very, very algorithmic, so I can totally see the appeal. Right. You're both the program and the compiler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the results are much more comfortable, usually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we spent so much on yarn now. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a 
Well, it's just like we do with computers, right? Exactly. Apple ha- Apple has an event, and we look at what to buy. They go to a yarn <laughs> store, and they look at what's there. When when I travel to other cities, my wife will send me uh, uh, messages about uh, di- different yard stores, and I will visit them, and I will buy something from them to bring back. I've likely been at many of them. Yes. <laughs> Don't doubt it. <laughs> You'll have to post some of these neat designs that you've been working on then, Dan. I will. My next step, which which is really a big step for me, is I'd like to design my own. Right now I'm using other people's patterns, but I'd like to get to a point where I could design my own. So what what is involved in doing your own design then? Like do you I guess you're you're setting forth the algorithm to implement your 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 product at the end. Exactly, and I'm I'm guessing there's a flat map involved. Ah, <laughs> uh, programmer humor. <laughs> well, you know, there's probably a knitting term for what essentially is a flat map, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm totally fascinated with uh, with all the the the, the humanity aspect of uh, where uh, textile comes from and and um, just not just yarn which is obviously coming from sheep uh, but uh, also cotton which is you know a plant and uh, and um, the weaving and uh, and uh, all of the using looms and things like that that brings you back to like we talked about bread baking about being something foundational to the human race I I will. Totally say that uh, uh, these uh, th- that knitting and that uh, and that um, creating fabric is also integral to being human. Oh, uh, absolutely! Last summer, I was lucky enough to speak at a, a conference that was on the Isle of Tessel, just off of the Netherlands. And uh, last time I was in Amsterdam, just a couple weeks ago, I saw some wool that was made from those sheep, and it was just came full circle. And someone wow. wearing a sweater made from the wool from those sheep. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm into single malt scotch, and it has the same feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Locally sourced, exactly. Get to know, get to know your alpaca. The sheep are less peaty. <laughs> yes, honestly, that this this whole discussion about uh, knitting and stuff that would be an excellent blitz talk. Mm. It's perfect. Yeah. So when you're n- when you're not doing uh, when when you're not gallivanting around the world uh, talking about functional programming, what what do you do in your off time? Besides knitting, I guess. Well, s- still one of my favorite things is baking bread and, and cooking at home. And I've been thinking about a book on that also because it occurs to me that the the person that works from home in our field is much like the housewife or the homemaker was in the old days where we have these chunks of time where we have to work. But there's these 10 minutes where we can go in the other room and we can start a stew that's going to cook all day. So these things that we make that don't require a lot of attention time, but they require us to be in the home all day, it's totally something we can do. Absolutely, man. And it's so good. Yeah. So so back back to your your baking bread aspect, Dan, what what have you what have you baked lately? What's your your choice, favorite choice these days? So my obsession a year and a half ago before I went back to Paris was to get a, a perfect baguette, but now lately I've been working on uh doing stuff with whole wheat because whole wheat often comes off so dense and I'm trying to get it to be lighter and lighter and I'm not successful yet. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's true. It, whole wheat and it, it gets stale so quickly too, right? It can if you put if you make it with a sourdough. It's that's actually one of the reasons sourdough was so popular is the shelf life was so long. And in oh. fact, for for some sourdoughs, particularly rye, they'll tell you you shouldn't even eat it for three days after it's made. It it doesn't even get ripe enough to eat. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I've I've gone to bakeries where they make you promise you won't eat it today. <laughs> oh my goodness! Really? 
I've never heard of that. That's so cool. Yeah, no, you, if you ever figure out the whole weed issue, then you'll have to. <laughs> we will do. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight, Daniel. Oh, thanks for calling. It's been a, it's a pleasure as always. And uh, if people want to know more about what you're writing, what you're cooking, what they, where can they go? So I have uh, two sites, one for my mainly my, my training and my work, which is the dimsumthinking.com. And then for my writing and my videos, I have editorscut.com. We'll make sure to put those in the show notes. And, um, and we hope that uh, you'll all come and see Daniel at uh, NS North at the end of April, April 26th to the 28th uh, in the beautiful Montreal, Quebec. Tickets are still available. Please uh, go to nsnorth.ca for all the details. And uh, thank you, Dan, for joining us tonight, too. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, thanks, Dan. Thanks, guys. And have a great evening. <laughs>